Howdy, podcast listeners. Have you ever wanted to bring the winery experience home? With Somley, you can. Now get the very best Texas wine shipped right to your doorstep. Somley features many of the highest quality small production wines you won't find in retail or restaurants. Check it out for yourself. Sign up, discover, and shop local today at Somley.com. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 51. My guest today is Don Pullum, proud resident and ardent supporter of Mason, Texas. He tells me about why he chose Mason to plant a vineyard back in the 90s and what makes it special today. First, there's news about how big the Texas wine industry is, how many acres are planted, and much more. I've been to the state fair to visit the Texas Wine Garden, to Grapevine to give a presentation to the Grapevine Wine Pouring Society, and also to Houston to attend the Texas Hill Country Wineries Roadshow. There's a lot to cover. You'll also want to stick around for the end when I give out demerits and gold stars. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Services has just published its first ever crush report. It's a crush report of the 2021 growing season and a vineyard production survey. They worked with the trade associations and wine trail organizers to survey vineyards and winery owners through an online survey this summer and early fall. The survey results surprised me, and here's why. The most recent USDA report on Texas wine grapes and acreage reported 5,140 acres of bearing grapevines in the state. This new AgriLife study combined online survey results with data collected by the AgriLife Extension Program, and it shows that there are 9,300 acres of vineyards across the state. They report 6,000 acres in the High Plains, 2,200 in the Hill Country, 600 in North Texas, and 450 in the Gulf Coast. The survey also asked growers if they had been impacted by herbicide drift, by winter injury, and by late spring frost. It also asked, do you intend to expand your vineyard in the future? And 60% said yes. The survey asked winery owners about wine club numbers and sales from all channels and whether or not respondents needed more Texas grapes. 70% said yes. There's a lot more to the report, and it's very interesting. The survey is still available online for those who haven't had the opportunity to fill it out yet, and they'll be re-releasing findings in the spring. So wineries and grape growers, please help Texas A&M AgriLife and all of us who are interested in the Texas wine industry gain insight by completing this survey. Better data helps all of us. I can't help but think about the benefit of having years and years of completed surveys. We do have those USDA surveys, But I've been told that grape growers just don't like to give out this data. I suppose it helps when it's a friendly AgriLife representative asking rather than the USDA. But I'd love to hear from winery owners and growers who are listening. What surprised you about this report? Another study was just published by Wine America, and it includes information on the total economic impact of the Texas wine industry. 
The previous study was released in 2017, and we've all been saying that the economic impact of the Texas wine industry is about $13.1 billion. Well, it's time to update our slide decks because this latest report showed an economic impact of a whopping $20 billion. It shows $685 million in tourist expenditures and almost $7 billion of wages for 141,000 jobs. That is incredible. For some reason, this report includes just a ridiculously low number of vineyard acres planted in Texas, 1,474 to be exact. I have no idea what happened with that number, but it's incomplete to be sure. I recently attended the Texas Hill Country Winery's Roadshow in Houston, and they shared some additional data points that are specific to the Hill Country. There are 120 wineries. About 400,000 cases of wine was produced in the Hill Country, and they have about 1 million visitors per year. And this is interesting. Apparently, there's a visitor study that finds that 75% of the visitors to the Hill Country are Texas residents, and 36% of them visit three to four times each year. Well, the roadshow in Houston was a great time. It took place at the University of Houston Hilton and started with a panel that featured Mike Nelson of Abastris, John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills, Karen Bonarigo of Messina Hoff, Julie Culkin of Pedernalis Cellars, Susan Johnson of Texas Heritage Vineyards, and Andrew Sides of the William Chris Wine Company. January Weesey, the executive director of the Texas Hill Country Wineries, moderated the panel. And there were many topics discussed, including the 22 Harvest, what a winery needs to be successful, the winery's biggest challenges, and lots more. I have a few random observations from the panel and my walk-around visits with the winery folks that turned out for this event. Number one is that staffing was frequently mentioned as a challenge for wineries. Not just finding staff, but finding them places to live. There's definitely a lack of affordable housing in the Hill Country. Number two, Andrew Sides mentioned that new technology in the cellar is helping them improve working hours and conditions for their employees. Even though William Chris was down two people in the cellar this harvest, the staff managed not to work their usual 36-hour shifts during harvest because the winery had invested in new equipment and a new space for processing grapes. Number three, an overall takeaway, many wineries have really struggled in recent years. Between COVID shutdowns and staffing challenges and weather woes, wineries have just endured a lot. They've managed by investing in their staff, even when that caused a massive financial hardship during the shutdown. They've had to learn new skills like delegating. And they've also been trying to anticipate what they'll need to be successful in the future. Karen Bonarigo said strategic planning is key because if you're planning to grow production, that's a multi-year ramp up. Just a few of the decisions that Texas wineries are making include their abilities to expand into new markets, to go into distribution, and to build new facilities. They're also making a million logistical decisions, and this is an area that's only increasing in complexity. It was mentioned that since the Texas wine industry is on the young side, there are so many new opportunities for various businesses to support the industry. One example was how Wine Cub entered the industry in 2018 and has alleviated packing and shipping services woes for many wineries. Another example is the custom crush fermentation and barrel aging companies that exist. 
The panel discussed the business decisions around putting wines in distribution and the need to get on more restaurant wine lists. It was great, thought-provoking discussion. Then I went to the walk-around tasting. The first part of it was for media and trade. There were 27 wineries on hand, and each poured three wines. I didn't taste all 81 wines, but I did taste about 45. But don't worry, I spit. I appreciated that so many winery owners were on site, and I appreciated that they brought some really great estate wines and some wines that they're excited about that haven't even been released yet. There was one aged wine there, and that was the 2012 Red Blend from Lewis Wines. Doug Lewis brought that. He said it was just coming into its own, and it was sure tasty. I was going to mention some of my favorites from this event, but frankly, there were just too many to even mention. I thought that the wines were really consistently excellent. I'm excited to hear that the Texas Hill Country wineries will be doing more road shows next year, perhaps one in Austin in the spring and then another location in the fall, hopefully Dallas. I would highly recommend this event, and general consumers were invited to purchase tickets for a session after the media and trade tasting, and I know over 100 people brought bought tickets for that. I stayed for part of it too, and I almost missed my flight home because I was having such a great time talking to everybody. It was a day well spent, and thanks to January, Kate, and Morgan for your hard work on this event, and to all the wineries as well. You've heard the news that the Wine Enthusiast magazine has removed Texas from consideration for wine reviews. This amid reports of massive staff departures and a shrinking budget. Alternatively, Decanter magazine out of the UK says U.S. wine regions are vast and varied and increasingly important to Decanter. And that's why they've added a U.S. editor and a whole slew of new writers. And one of them is Texas's own Jessica Dupuy who has been writing about Texas wine for Texas Monthly and many other publications. DeCantor says that she and fellow writers Stacy Slinkard and Lauren Mowry are wine sleuths on the hunt for hidden wine gems, untold producer stories, and wineries to watch across America's 50 states. And speaking of Jessica Dupuy, she's joined up with Mark Rayshap to relaunch a podcast that Mark started years ago. It's called Another Bottle Down, and in the past was a weekly radio show on KOOP in Austin. Then the content was turned into a podcast. On Another Bottle Down, you'll hear about wines from all over the world, and that includes Texas. Jessica recently shared a story about flying out to visit West Texas Vineyards with William Chris founder, Chris Brundrett. Check it out. A few wineries have big announcements. Wine for the People is moving its tasting room from the West Austin space that they've been sharing with CL Buteau, in a new Central Austin location, Wine for the People and Ray Wilson will share space with the restaurant Spread & Company. In this new partnership, Spread & Company will serve food and drinks from 9 to 3, Tuesday through Sunday. And then Wine for the People will operate the space from 3 to 9 with tastings, wine glasses and bottles, plus cheese charcuterie and paired food from Spread. The move happens in November. That means that as of November the 15th, the West Austin space will be solely dedicated to CL Buteau tasting and events. Randy and Brooke Hester said, What won't change is delicious wines and our partnerships with the larger wine and food community. They've got a bunch of events on their calendar this fall. There will soon be a new place to taste Bingham Family Vineyards. The Bingham Family is opening a tasting room in Roanoke, Texas. Roanoke is the unique dining capital of Texas and is located in Denton County. 
and that's just about 10 miles northwest of Grapevine. Next, the owners of Grape Creek and Heath Sparkling Wine are opening a new spot called Gin Blossom Cellars. It will be a modern two-story tasting room that will open in 2024 on the same property where Grape Creek and Heath are located. I saw the tasting room drawings, and they look very modern and sleek. The estimated price tag for construction of this tasting room will be over $3.4 million. Now, I'm not really up on what it costs to build a tasting room, but wow. So Gen Blossom Cellars is focused on ultra-premium AVA-driven red wines from diverse terroirs. They craft these ultra-premium wines at Grape Creek. And currently, the wines include a bunch of different cabs from very specific places, Pritchard Hill, Rutherford, Yauntville, Hall Mountain, Atlas Peak, and a general Napa cab. They have a Syrah from Paso, a Petit Verdot from the Texas High Plains, Cab Franc from Knights Valley, which is in Sonoma, and a Pinot Noir from Petaluma Gap in Sonoma Coast. You can already taste these wines by appointment at Grape Creek. In one more piece of winery news, Seth Urbanic has been promoted to general manager at Wedding Oak Winery. In this new role, Seth will oversee the winery's next phase of growth and continue directing the winemaking team. Founding partner Mike McHenry, who has guided Wedding Oak since 2012, will remain as a managing partner. And to add depth to the winemaking team, Wedding Oak Winery has hired Elizabeth Kuhn as assistant winemaker. She's already completed three harvests at Wedding Oak and also was president at the Houston Roadshow. There are so many Texas wine events happening this month, and since I can't announce them all, let me just mention a few that I'll be attending. On October 14th, the four wineries that are part of Texas Fine Wine will be doing a virtual tasting. And even if you didn't purchase the wines for this tasting, you can still join in the conversation, which will focus on some differences in fruit between the Hill Country and the High Plains. Then go ahead and plan ahead and get the wines for the December 8th Talk and Taste. They'll go on sale at a later date in October, and I think it's a treat to get wines from four different wineries in one bundle. I've already been out to the Texas Wine Garden at the State Fair of Texas once, and I met some podcast listeners there for a fun afternoon. But if you missed that, you've got another chance. I'll be going live with the State Fair Marketing VP to discuss the Texas wines that are on the list and possibly some great State Fair food pairings. The event is on October the 18th at 5 p.m., and I'll stay around afterwards for happy hour if anyone wants to come out. But sorry, happy hour pricing isn't a thing at the fair, but it'll still be fun. Last week, I mentioned a big Texas wine happening in Dallas at the end of the month, and now I've got a promo code to save $10 for the Texas Harvest Wine Tasting, which is Friday, October 28th at the Dallas Farmer's Market. It's an evening event where North Texas Vineyards will be pouring over 40 selections of local wine. Admission is $65, and it has sold out in the past, so you do want to get your tickets soon. To get $10 off your ticket, use the code TXWINEPODCAST10. I'll record that in the show notes, so find it there, along with all the other links to articles and studies I've mentioned. And that's the Texas Wine News. Let's talk about the podcast newsletter. I've got a bunch of listeners who haven't yet subscribed to the newsletter, and y'all are missing out. To encourage you to sign up, I'm going to start regularly giving out winery tasting passes. I previously gave away passes to William Chris Vineyards and Lost Draw Cellars to some lucky listeners. My next passes are to The Hill at High, 
and French Connection wines. Yep, thanks to my generous previous guests, Donna Renee Johnston and Victoria Calais, I've got passes to gift. And here's how it's going to work. I'm sending my podcast newsletter out next week, and there you'll find information about requesting these passes. By the way, that podcast with Donna Renee and Victoria about visiting Texas tasting rooms had the best first week listening stats in the history of this podcast. Now, that's the kind of background information that you usually get from being a podcast newsletter subscriber. To sign up for the podcast newsletter, visit thisistexaswine.com, then click newsletter sign up. So watch out for next week's newsletter, and you can be on your way to free tastings at the Hill at High or French Connection. And I'll continue to share great opportunities via email, so it's never too late to sign up. And let's be real, I certainly won't flood your inbox because usually the newsletter is the last thing on my monthly to-do list, and it doesn't always happen. Cheers, y'all. One of the first Texas winemakers that I ever heard of was Don Pullum, and he's my guest today. I've always followed news of the culinary world, and in early 2014, I heard about a reality cooking show featuring a Texas winemaker from Mason, Texas. At the time, I wasn't really drinking much Texas wine, and I had never heard of Mason. I certainly didn't know that there was a legit wine community developing there. The wine community in Mason has come a long way, and you're about to hear how things developed. Don's insights from his years as a grower and winemaker may help you understand a bit better why Mason is trending. Well, thanks, Don, for being with me. I would love for listeners to know a little bit more about your story in Texas wine and how you became called the father of Mason County winemaking. Yes, that's that's a great name. Uh, I will take that name, although there has not been a paternity test done. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in 1998, um, I started early in the year. I started looking for uh, land to grow grapes, and I had done a, a quite a bit of research of the kind of soils and and geology and geography and weather uh, that I wanted. So I created a spec sheet and I spent about a year going all over Texas, uh, as far north as the Red River uh, to South Texas. I think as far west as I got was Schleicher County, uh, because further west than that, uh, your only neighbors were cougars and, uh, and other wildlife. And I thought I wanted at least a little more human contact. Uh, so, so, uh, I stopped in Schleicher County. Um, interesting story in Schleicher County, there is, uh, a monastery there. And I just happened to be going along, uh, and got to the town of San Cristobal, uh, which there is a winery now. And I noticed the, a sign for the monastery, and I thought, well, I'm going to go visit this. I have to. So I went to the monastery, and, and at the time, um, it was just a chapel and some very, very small uh, structures where the brothers uh, lived. And this uh, group, was devoted to prayer. Um, so I went into the monastery and, and sat down and I, there was Gregorian chants going on in the background and it was the brothers doing their daily routine. And uh, finally uh, 
the person who started the monastery, Father Fabian, uh, came out and asked me how I was and what I was doing. I told him I was looking for vineyard land. And he said, well, uh, I will have the brothers uh, pray for you uh, that you find the right vineyard land. And two months later, I was in Mason County, Texas. I had found the right vineyard land. Uh, your, your journey was blessed. I think so. Straight, straight, from, uh, uh, straight from the heavens above. Uh, <laughs> it's not been without a lot of challenges. Uh, but, you know, when you are the first in uh, uh, an emerging wine region, uh, you're the one up front making all the mistakes. <laughs> and uh, boy, did I make a lot of mistakes. What was it about Mason County? I had, uh, as I mentioned, I had spent about a year driving uh, over most of Texas. And I at every county, there generally is a compiled soil survey book, and it has all the soil survey maps in it. I was uh, stopping in Mason because on the square, and it's really a beautiful little representation of uh, frontier Texas squares, um, there was a good coffee shop here. So I was always stopping for coffee, and I... I looked for the soil survey map book and they had not compiled one for Mason County. So I, it, it essentially was a place I drove through because it's pretty centrally located in the state of Texas. Um, then one month I was driving through Mason County and the farmers had started to till uh, the soils. And I thought, Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, so I pulled over and I actually hopped a barbed wire fence uh, and got my hands down in the soils to see what it was. And it was all this wonderful sandy soils, uh, coarse sand to medium sand and some fine sand in it. And it was the it was the ideal soil that I was looking Grapes can grow in many different types of soils, but the one I was looking for uh, was this soil. And I, I in hindsight, uh, I happened to have trespassed on uh, Drew Talent's property. And now Drew Talent is the largest grape grower in Mason County with 70 acres. Um, so when I saw that, I, I immediately uh, went over and talked with a real estate agent. And she, and she looked perplexed <laughs> when I told her what I wanted to do. <laughs> and she said, all right, I've got your spec sheet. Uh, I'll start looking for you. And we, I found my vineyard, which I call Akashic Vineyard. And the word Akashic uh, has Hindu origin, origins, but it has a Buddhist definition uh, that means nature's memory. And I thought, you know, that is absolutely perfect for what wine is. Uh, wine is nature's memory. That's lovely. Well, at this point, had you grown anything before? Yeah, I, I had that absolute perfect background uh, for grape growing. I started out, uh, I have a degree in English and American literature from Harvard University. And I have 11 years in the banking industry and six years in the venture capital industry. 
And all of that absolutely prepared me for agriculture. Uh, oh, it sounds <laughs> yes. like it. Perfect. So, so no, I, I had no experience. Um, at, at my homes, I would always plant four or five, uh, four or five vines, and I would make some homemade wine. Uh, so for a very long time, uh, I was a home winemaker um, and plying my, my wines uh, uh, and giving them to my friends and tasting, you know, serving them at meals I prepared. Um, and actually, I originally did not intend to get into winemaking. I simply wanted a vineyard. Um, and the vineyard came about. And my wife uh, uh, had ALS, uh, unfortunately. And when uh, her symptoms started appearing, I had to find a way to make some money. <laughs> and, and viticulture was not the way to do that. Uh, so um, I started making wine. I made, uh, well, first I made wine in 2004 on a commercial basis for Sandstone Cellars. Uh, Scott Hoppert and Manny Salerio were neighbors of mine uh, on Bluff Creek Road. They're just uh, about a mile and a half from me. And they were on the opposite side of the creek. And these two guys had uh, started a restaurant in town called Santos Taqueria. And they wanted to purchase a building next door to the restaurant for parking space. Um, and we sat around and drank a lot of wine and, and tried to figure out what to do with the building. And finally, after thinking, well, you know, art gallery, uh, what does the community need? Uh, and we can turn a profit on, uh, maybe we'll do Santos hot sauces and sell her hot sauces there. Um, and we finally came up with the idea, let's do a boutique winery. And that was in, uh, 2004, was the first vintage for Sandstone Cellars. And it came right behind uh, 2003 when the state uh, constitution changed, which changed the local liquor option laws, um, which would allow a winery to not only produce wine, but to retail it at their tasting room. So everything seemed, seemed to have fallen into place. Um, I mean, even Scott. Scott has a fabulous background for, for the wine industry. Um, he's a professional violist uh, with a long career in, uh, in L.A. Uh, doing, as a studio musician. He's done over 300 movies uh, as a studio musician. Right. Yeah. And he happened to graduate from Yale. So we had a Harvard guy and a Yale guy uh, teamed up together. What could go wrong? Of course. Were you drinking Texas wine or were you drinking wines of the world and hoping to do something special in Texas that you hadn't quite tasted yet? Or what was your, what was your inspiration for making Texas wine? Um, I, my first taste of wine was not jug wine on Padre Island and Corpus Christi, like so many of, of my friends. Uh, I, um, I had a, a friend who uh, had lost his father, and the local priest at uh, his parish um, became friends of their family. And this priest did not take vows of poverty, 
and his family had an extensive wine cellar. So when I got invited over to my friend's house for dinner, uh, the priest would show up with an extraordinary bottle of wine, and we would uh, get our two-ounce pour of that wine for dinner. And so I was initiated uh, into wine consumerism on some really very good stuff. Uh, so I started a, an early appreciation for wine. Then when I got to college, uh, my roommates and I, after we finished uh, exams, um, we would celebrate by, there was a great little wine shop in Cambridge, and we'd go visit the wine shop, and we were able to buy uh, some pretty fantastic Bordeaux, uh, first gross, uh, at very reasonable prices. Uh, and, you know, when you split it between four or five people, uh, the price goes down. And we would uh, uh, celebrate with uh, a glass of, of first growth Bordeaux. And I was interested in Bordeaux at the time and started uh, an avocation in wine um, and eventually started uh, making wine as a home winemaker. Did you always know what varieties you wanted to plant in Mason? Um, I knew, I mean, when I got started in 1998, there were only 24 wineries in the state of Texas. Um, and most of them had planted, uh, uh, you know, the fighting varietals, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, uh, Chardonnay, uh, some Zinfandel. And because, you know, that's what, uh, the consumer wanted at the time. Um, I had progressed in my wine drinking. Uh, I went through Bordeaux for a long time, uh, then started getting an interest in Burgundies. And uh, then, of course, in the 80s, it was, uh, it was big old uh, Zinfandels, those 16 to 17% extra jammy Zinfandels. Um, and then I started, I was curious. So I, uh, whatever, um, uh, other varietals were available or blends that were available, I started tasting them. I fell in love with Rhone varietals, uh, and eventually Portuguese varietals. So I, I had a, a broad tasting experience, uh, before I planted and I knew, uh, we were having difficulty at that time as growers growing good Cabernet Merlot and and Chardonnay was really exceptional quality, but it was difficult to grow because it buds very early and late spring freezes were really uh, cutting down on the yields. So I started out with Grenache, uh, a Rhone varietal. Um, and found out that Mason was inhospitable to Grenache. Uh, Grenache is a very aggressive growing variety. Um, the wine made from the Grenache I grew was exceptional. Um, I sold my first Grenache to Alamosa wine cellars, and Jim Johnson made an extraordinary Grenache, uh, which he priced too low, and it <laughs> sold out very, very quickly. Uh, but then I started getting hit with uh, late spring freezes. Um, uh, I followed on with plantings of Primitivo and uh, Sangiovese. 
and then ultimately Morved. Um, the Sangiovese I thought was going to be a super variety for here because it, uh, although it buds early, it hangs for a very long time to get ripe. So I thought, okay, well, this Sangiovese is a great variety that I'm going to get the hang time on uh, so I can develop all those polyphenols and, and tannins and, and get true uh, character out of, out of the Sangiovese. Um, however, late spring freezes uh, were exceptionally devastating for me. I, uh, I guess, let's see, the first harvest I had was on the Grenache, and it was so vigorous, I harvested uh, two tons off an acre from second leaf vines. Uh, so they were, I, mean, I was excited. And then um, third year came around and I harvested five tons of Grenache. Uh, and then the next year came around, I harvested five tons of Grenache and six tons of Primitivo. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm hitting all my production goals. I think I got this thing licked here. Um, but in 2005, we started having unusual late spring freezes. And my vineyard has frozen to the ground uh, four times uh, in the last 24 years. And that uh, I'm going to replant everything now, changing some of the varietals. Obviously, Grenache is not going to happen anymore because uh, it's so vigorous that the cell structure of the trunks and, and the arms, um, it has very big cells that when they fill with water are easy to burst uh, from freezing and then quickly heating up. Um, so split trunks is, is a normal thing and that's not the variety for here. Uh, so I was, uh, I was experimenting with uh, those varieties and then um, a neighbor, out, I was out in Streeter and a a neighbor that I actually had not met, uh, uh, Paul and Nancy Buist, uh, purchased a vineyard, uh, property in Streeter, and they planted Merlot and Chardonnay, and also one acre experimental vineyard, uh, looking at different varieties, uh, warm, most all, all warm weather varieties, and uh, and oddly enough, they planted one acre of Tariga Nacional. And Paul Buist was a great fan of port. And he always thought, well, we need Tariga Nacional in Texas. He was the first one to plant it. Um, and at, we got his Tariga at Sandstone Cellars. And, oh, my gosh, we realized, wow, this is really special stuff here. Um, I remember the first Tariga. It, it was actually at Sandstone Cellars we did what I call fusion blending. Um, I was taking many different grape varieties and we were fermenting most of them separately uh, if we had the quantities. And then we would um, do a tasting, blending trials and blend them. And finally we came up with our blend and we knew the blend was going to be different every, from year to year to year. Um, so, uh, it was a fusion blend, and it was whatever tastes best together goes in the blend. 
Um, and we, we got a lot of attention for that. Um, however, the one year, the Tariga Nationale was so special that we made a 100% Tariga Nationale. Um, we were listed as one of 37 American wines to taste. Uh, I think that one was Savour magazine. And then we uh, also were in Food and Wine magazine uh, uh, as a selected wine by uh, a well-respected sommelier. Um, so even though the, our goal and our goal ever since at Sandstone Cellars has been to do fusion wines, uh, it was the 100% Tariga that got Sandstone Cellars a tremendous amount of notice. Um, and we also early on got a lot of notice uh, at being a crazy man. I, uh, the third commercial wine we made at Sandstone Cellars and the third commercial wine I had ever made, uh, we sent off to Robert Parker. Uh, and uh, for everybody who doesn't know Robert Parker, he's sort of uh, the American wine guru uh, uh, for consumers. And holy moly, we ended up as one of six Texas wineries uh, uh, noticed uh, in Robert Parker's seventh edition of Robert Parker's Wine Guide. Um, and, and we're talking, um, it, was a, it was a blend. It was a Rhone blend, Grenache, Morved. Um, I had a little bit of Primitivo because the Primitivo was giving me lots of black pepper character. Um, and it turned out to be a, a pretty special wine, and they liked it enough uh, to include us uh, in that. All of a sudden, we started getting attention in Mason. Uh, the thing of, and and our fruit uh, and Becker uh, at Becker Vineyards, uh, the doctor, I took some wine that I had made and let him taste it, a Sangiovese, uh, and he was pretty impressed with it. And all of a sudden, we are getting interest in the fruit that's being grown in Mason. Uh, which is to the detriment of sandstone cellars, because all of a sudden we we got a lot of interest, uh, we got a lot of attention, which was fantastic, and I was I knew that um, as one tiny little micro winery in Mason with a couple of vineyards was not sufficient to establish a wine community, um, and I wanted. Mason to have a wine community. I was, uh, I'm enthralled with Mason. I think it's a wonderful place to live and it has everything you could possibly want uh, for small family owned vineyards and wineries. Um, the reason I say small is because the soils here are called hickory sand soils and they are uh, quartzite sand soils uh, anywhere from coarse to fine sands. Uh, there's even some areas where the sand has pea gravel in it. Uh, so it drains uh, quite well. Um, high in micronutrients, uh, low in, in macronutrients. Um, so we're able to control the growth uh, by application of fertilizers uh, on the macronutrient side, but we're getting some really special stuff uh, from the micronutrients in the soil. We also have granite outcroppings 
and there are areas uh, where granite, decomposed granite is also found in the soil. Um, the soils here, I mean, truly are unique. They, they are part of a, a Precambrian uh, area, especially in Texas. It's uh, the oldest outcroppings of, of uh, any area in Texas of, uh, of granite. And we've got schist and uh, chert. And even my neighbor has uh, a little bit of, of marble. It's not commercial marble, commercial grade marble, but it's marble. Um, so really unique stuff in the soil. Interesting. And then underneath the soil, we have an aquifer, which is a minor aquifer in Texas, uh, called the Hickory Sand Aquifer, or often referred to as the Hickory Aquifer. And the it's... It's really a collection of pools of water um, that have uh, found places in the subsurface um, through uh, fractured sandstone. So it's it's not an enormous aquifer, and it doesn't uh, fill the entire county of Mason. There are certain areas where are called recharge zones where water. Uh, subsoil water flows to certain areas and and recharges those areas. And in Streeter, Texas, uh, we're fortunate to be in one of those recharge areas. Uh, Drew Talents Vineyard is in one of those recharge areas. Um, and uh, Ponotoc uh, has surprisingly, there are pockets of good water there. I mean, you could you could have a well that's doing that's pumping 50 gallons a minute and across the street, a well that's run dry simply because of the way the, the stone is fractured, sandstone is fractured. Um, and that's uh, another element uh, and the water's good. The water is neutral pH to slightly acidic and the soils are neutral to slightly acidic in most locations and grapevines want uh, water and soils uh, that are neutral because it allows them to uptake lots of micronutrients. And I think that's another component of our area that is providing us with a very unique terroir. I wanted to um, also mention the elevation in Mason County. I understand that a lot of the vineyards are planted at a bit higher elevation than in most of the rest of the hill country. Yeah, we are at 1,600 uh, anywhere from 1,600 feet above sea level, um, and up at Pontotoc, they're at around 2,000 feet above sea level. Um, we also have, uh, uh, I, I think you've had conversations about about diurnal uh, temperatures, yep. uh, which is the difference between the temperature, daytime temperature, and nighttime temperature. And we have lovely diurnal temperatures of anywhere from 25 to 30 degrees, uh, which helps the vines retain acidity uh, because it gets cooler at night. Um, and then during the day, uh, uh, the vines, you know, put on sugars and mature their fruit. Um, something is happening in our climate uh, because in 24 years, I have noticed um, we are 
warming in this area earlier. Uh, we normally, when I first started planting, we did not have 90 degree days in May and June. Um, and we are now having uh, earlier, uh, earlier springs, lots of heat uh, in May and June uh, and July and August, uh, which normally in this area was the hottest, uh, except for this year. This year was extremely hot, uh, but August seems to be cooling off. And this year, uh, September is being unusually warm. So we're, uh, I think, picking grape varieties that can hand going in the future, continuing to pick grape varieties that can handle um, a hotter climate is the right thing to do. Um, most of the grapes planted in Mason County are all red varieties. Um, although there are some white varieties that I, I think will do pretty well. Uh, we have one vineyard called Peter's Prairie Vineyard, and they now have a winery, Peter's Prairie Winery, mm -hmm. um, that uh, have uh, Pinot Grigio, which is a white wine, but it's a red grape. Uh, and it, it does quite well. Um, so our elevation also contributes uh, to the Mason County terroir. And we've had enough experience making wine from Mason County fruit that we're beginning to recognize an honest-to-God terroir. Um, and if uh, the winemakers here continue to focus on being grape whisperers uh, and listening to the grape varieties and not approach winemaking with an idea of a wine they want to make and then force the grapes into it, we will continue to explore the terroir. And I, I can honestly say uh, some of the things about our terroir is the wines are going to be highly aromatic. Um, and we found that to be the case. And the wines tend to be medium bodied uh, and light bodied. And the alcohol content, the grapes are getting ripe with uh, a lower bricks, uh, which is a measurement of soluble solids and sugar is the major soluble solid in, in grapes, but lower bricks, which result in lower alcohol wines. So if you, you are a grape whisperer, you accept that and you say, thank you vineyard for giving me these grapes um, and giving me ripe fruit. And thank you for the low alcohol because we're going to be able to tell more complexity in the wine. That's a lot to pull off when the, the weather is warming. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, but when, when temperatures get above 95 degrees, a lot of vin uh, grapes, depending on variety, uh, a lot of grapevines will stop maturing their fruit. Um, this year, we have one vineyard in Mason County um, that is still harvesting uh, into late September and will probably harvest into early October red grape varieties. And that is most unusual for us. So since we started in uh, at Sandstone Cellars, we've had uh, 
wonderful success at Sandstone Cellars. It was accepted in the community, which is very, very nice. Um, and then because viticulture and winemaking are very capital intensive, uh, we started looking at helping people start their vineyards and encouraging them to start vineyards and eventually start wineries in Mason County. I think another milestone we had uh, in Mason County was I was uh, making wine for Pontotoc Vineyard Winery, uh, which has its tasting room on Main Street in Fredericksburg. Um, I had been working with their grapes and they grow nothing but uh, Tempranillo there at Sandstone. And I've been using them in blends at Sandstone. And then uh, Carl and Francis Money decided they wanted to open a winery. So we, they opened a production facility and they asked me to make their wines for them. Um, so we started with 2011 and the 2014 vintage, I did a 100% Tempranillo, a state Tempranillo at Pontotoc. And it received a double gold medal, a score of 95 at the San Francisco International Wine Competition. Uh, so we were producing things that were, were scoring well. Also, we include Alphonse Dotson and Martha Cervantes Dotson's Searchenberg Vineyard in Voca, Texas, uh, in Mason County, although it's just across the county line uh, in McCullough County, uh, because their vineyard is in hickory sand soils, um, and they are making pretty fabulous wines. Uh, Alphonse was uh, planted, they planted their vineyard in 1997, a year before me, and when I was, all of a sudden I started thinking Mason's the right place, a realtor said, go visit with Alphonse and Martha. And I thought, well, yeah, okay. But I didn't have a telephone number. So I thought, well, I'll just show up on their front door. What's the worst? They could say, you're trespassing, get off. So so I show up and uh, I'm, you know, I'm have, I was 40 years old. I was having uh, an early midlife crisis. So I had my midlife crisis ponytail uh, and, and showed up at their front door and Alphonse a answers the door and he says, well, come on in young fella. And, uh, and we sat down at the dining room table and Martha fed me and we talked about grape growing and his experience with grape growing was one year. So we all grew up together. Uh, making many, many mistakes and learning from our mistakes, uh, commensurating with one another uh, and enjoying uh, uh, the accolades that we were getting as well. Uh, Martha and, and Alphonse are very, very good friends. That's great. More vineyards started to get planted. I think the most significant vineyard to be planted was by Drew Talent. And Drew's Fruit is winning gold medals uh, by Becker Vineyards, uh, wines made by Becker Vineyards. Um, he also sells wine grapes to Bending Branch. And then Alphonse Dotson's grapes are being 
sold principally to Fall Creek Winery. Um, and it, it goes into the Maratus blend uh, for his red varieties and his Chardonnay. Fall Creek makes an estate Chardonnay uh, with his fruit and it's always winning awards. But Drew, what was important about Drew, besides being a great farmer, he was a fifth generation or is a fifth generation farmer in Mason County. And that gave us a lot of local credibility. Uh, when, of course, some of the people thought, well, Drew's gone a little crazy. <laughs> What's he doing planting wine grapes? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he did his research, uh, uh, you know, as, as farming practices, but he also did his financial research. And he realized, well, if you can get through the first five years of grape growing, uh, you can have a very nice, sustainable family business. And he's up to 70 acres of production. And I give a lot of uh, credit to Drew for helping um, advance the Mason County wine industry. That's something. Well, I was there for the Wine and Art Festival um, not too terribly long ago, and I was just completely amazed at the new wineries that are springing up around the town square. And I think that um, it's it's great to see, especially some longtime growers um, now having a tasting room and then um, just some, some brand new folks, too. So what do you think of all the growth? I mean, it's what you hoped for. You were looking for a wine community, and it, it took a while, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I was hoping for the wine community to develop in 10 years, and it took 22 years, so... So I'm excited it happened, um, and it it is contributing um, revenue to the community. A lot of the crops that were grown in Mason, we were Mason County was known for truck crops like cantaloupes and watermelons um, and uh, peanuts in particular. Uh, but all of those things uh, became less profitable, and and so what ended up when I was here, most of Mason County's agriculture for irrigated crops um, was uh, cattle, uh, obviously, and uh, hay. And, uh, you know, a very fine hay, a premium quality hay. It wasn't just a run-of-the-mill hay coming from Mason County, but that was it. And I was hoping that grapes and wine grapes would offer another agriculture product, uh, and and they certainly did. So we saw vineyards spring up. The uh, Robert Clay vineyards um, were was originally uh, planted by Paul and Nancy Buist, um, and they were my neighbors out in Streeter, and they're the ones who planted the Tariga Nacional. Um, uh, Paul. Uh, 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 had cancer develop. And so they eventually, uh, the vineyard went into decline and they sold the vineyard um, uh, to Dan McLaughlin uh, and Jeannie McLaughlin. And they actually spent two years working hard to bring it back into production. And then 
keeping the name, and it was very nice of them to keep the name Robert Clay Vineyards, uh, they opened Robert Clay Vineyards Winery. Uh, and Robert Parr, uh, who started a winery or vineyard in Streeter, uh, finally got his production up and he continues to sell grapes to other wineries, but he also opened up a, vin a winery on the square. Um, and then we attracted another winery, Murphy Creek Winery, which um, resells nothing but Texas wines. And they probably have the largest selection of Texas wines at any one location in the state. Um, so they, they have a small production themselves, and then they have a tremendous amount of wine from other wineries in the state. Um, Peter's Prairie Winery, that's uh, another vineyard that was opened and the owners suddenly died. Um, and then that was sold. And the new owners of Peter's Prairie Vineyard opened up a winery on the square. Um, and then we have a local boy. Brock Estes started a, a small vineyard called Fly Gap Winery uh, in Fly Gap, Texas. And he and his friend uh, have a little vineyard called Spiller Mine Vineyard. And uh, Brock opened a winery uh, just off the square. Everybody knows Brock. Brock is... Um... I mean, if you're the father of winemaking, Brock is like the mayor, right? Uh, well, well, let's see. I'm the father of uh, of winemaking. Uh, I guess Brock is the bastard son. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> so uh, let's see. If we got it, Sandstone, Parr, Robert Clay, uh, Saba, Murphy Creek, Peter's Prairie, Flygap. I, I know that you're a, a teacher at heart. For people who are wanting to get involved in in the wine industry, perhaps in Mason or elsewhere, what what do you hope they know about uh, Texas wine? I I think one important thing a person should do, obviously, is is avail themselves of uh, the Texas uh, Wine and Grape Growers Association and other trade associations that are available for educational purposes. But I, I highly recommend uh, apprenticeships. Brock Estes uh, at Flygap Winery uh, apprenticed at Sandstone Cellars Winery with us uh, for six months um, when he was getting his uh, degree in business, undergraduate degree in business administration. Um, and he was getting course credit for uh, working with us at the winery. And I think he got bit by the wine bug while he was doing that uh, and eventually uh, started his own winery. Um, so I, I think apprenticeship is really, really important. Um, and to that extent, in Mason County, uh, Dan McLaughlin and a college professor at Texas A&M put together a viticulture program is the first viticultural program in the state of Texas for high school students. So we now have high school students uh, taking uh, viticultural classes with uh, a practicum in local vineyards, uh, as well as they've planted their own experimental vineyard uh, at the high school. And uh, so far from the grad, the first 
uh, graduating class of, uh, of that course, uh, there are two people uh, who are in the Mason County wine industry. So apprentice, find a way to be a pr an apprentice and spend a season um, in viticulture and wine production and have that experience and that'll prepare you very well uh, for moving forward. I would be remiss if I did not ask you about your experience on reality TV, because to be honest, I first heard your name back in 2014 when you were on the ABC show, The Taste. And I understand that we both have a shared affection for Marcus Samuelson, but can you say a few words about <laughs> what that experience meant to you? And frankly, I have to admit that I didn't even know where Mason was and I wasn't drinking Texas wine at the time. So you taught me something too. I had uh, auditioned for another reality cooking competition um, called MasterChef uh, in 2010. And uh, it was a cattle call and you cooked a dish and you showed up and, and you presented yourself uh, to a group of casting people. And, and there you have it. So you're either selected or not. And I was not selected. Uh, but my uh, resume, et cetera, was kept on file. And these casting companies talked to one another. And so uh, another casting company was casting uh, a primetime television show called The Taste that was hosted by Anthony Bourdain and Nigella Lawson uh, with two other chefs as judges. And that was Marcus Samuelson um, and Ludo Lefebvre, the bad boy Frenchman of, of television. And so um, I got a, a, an email from a new casting company that had gotten my name from another casting company and said, we're doing this new primetime television show on ABC. Uh, do you know of anybody who wants to uh, uh, audition? It was like, oh, you're, you're teasing me with that, aren't you? So, so I, uh, 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 you know, did a, at the time it was Skype was the popular thing. So we did a Skype interview. I cooked some stuff, um, sent it off to him thinking that, well, you know, Nothing's going to happen. Uh, but I was uh, a Texas winemaker in a small Texas community. And that was a pretty decent uh, national story for the taste. Um, as well as uh, my wife, Diana, uh, had ALS and she had passed away nine months earlier. And and they wanted uh, that as part of my story, obviously, if you saw the show, or you can see the show, by the way, if you go to abc.com, uh, look for shows, and then look for The Taste Season 2, and select Auditions, the first episode, uh, where I got most of my airtime. Uh, they actually came down and uh, taped here in Mason, Texas, and uh, so we, we got a backstory and got to promote Mason County, Texas and Mason County wines. As a matter of fact, when I uh, the premise of the show is to cook one bite of food. It's tasted blind by four judges 
and the judges who uh, will select from that bite of food who they want on their teams, and then the teams compete against each other collectively and individually. Um, So uh, when I walked on stage, uh, uh, I carried a glass of wine with me uh, because I said, Al, I'm a Texas winemaker. I'm going to be on stage with a glass of wine. I remember Bourdain said, uh, tell us who you are. And I did. And he said, but first, um, tell us what you're drinking. <laughs> so so they had a nice Pinot Grigio that I thought would taste well with uh, the spiced uh, deep fried oyster that I'd made um, that they enjoyed and, uh, and got to say Mason County, Texas wine uh, on national television with a viewership of 5 million people. So I, I achieved my goal. That's cool. Yeah. And it, it turned out to be a tremendous amount of fun. I've stayed in touch with most of the chefs uh, and contestants on the show and I actually have had four of them come out and visit us here in Mason uh, because how could they not want to come out and visit us in Mason? What else is keeping you busy during retirement? And I would love for you to give a plug for your radio show that you do with Brock Estes. Um, I do a radio show called Hill Country Wine Talk um, on Lone Star 102.5 in Mason, Texas. And it's a 30-minute show. And for the most, most part, we are talking about wine basics, how to taste wine, Um um, what is wine made of? Uh, what are the grape varieties in wine? So we'll spend 30 minutes going over the basics because we want our wine community here to learn about wine. And when they go into a tasting room, not be uh, feel uncomfortable about going into a tasting room um, and know how the whole process works. Um, and then we're doing some interviews we I, last episode I did an interview with THC Brewery uh, on the square in Mason, our Mason County's first brewery, um, and it's really wonderful to have a a, a brew house on the square. Uh, so the show has been uh, pretty exceptional. Uh, I, we really can't know how many people are listening which is very frustrating. Uh, But we see signs that some people are listening. We have a Facebook account, Hill Country Wine Talk, uh, that now has uh, a little over a thousand uh, followers, um, as well as um, if people listen streaming via the internet, the people who provide that service also provides tracking information and one episode, we had 20 people from India listening to us, uh, which I thought was pretty fantastic. That is cool. <laughs> so That's we're getting cool. international attention uh, for, for our wines in Mason County, Texas. You may have a real tourism boom soon. We're, we're hoping. Um, tourism has been, most of Mason County tourism has been hunting. Uh, fishing more recently, uh, some uh, outdoor activities. Um, Although we have 
a rich history here. Gibson, who wrote Old Yeller, wrote it while he lived in Mason, uh, and he grew up in Mason. And we've got a great museum, and because of our geology, um, we have an ancient history of, of peoples in this area. Um, there was, uh, in that museum, you can see uh, a part of a mastodon tusk uh, that was found in a creek bed here in Mason County, as well as a splendid collection of arrowheads. Wow. Well, I hope listeners will, will come out to Mason either just on a regular day or perhaps on one of your festival days. I really had a great time at the, the Art and Wine Festival and I know that's an annual event, so I'll be sure and publicize when that comes around again. And I'm sure there are other events, too, so people can go see the wineries that you've mentioned. And I bet they'll see you out on the square somewhere, too. Where do you, where do you hang out the most these days? I, I actually um, have been uh, behaving like a, a free publicist uh, for the Mason County wine community. Uh, so I've been, uh, over the past several months, visiting all of the wineries on a regular basis. Uh, we've got, what, seven wineries on the square. So it's a walkable wine tasting. Uh, and we've got some lovely bed and breakfast that you can stay at. Uh, so you come, you park your car, um, and you eat at the local restaurants and, and walk your wine tour, uh, which is quite a different uh, uh, venue than other wine regions in the state. Absolutely. That's nice to be able to do that. And I imagine there are a couple of prime places to eat, too. Oh, yeah. The restaurant Santos Taqueria that's got many opened uh, is still here, um, being operated by uh, Manny's brother now. And they have stayed true to the recipes. And uh, it is one fine place to eat. And then uh, we've got several other restaurants on the square uh, one uh, uh, by a character, owned by a character in Mason County, a fellow named Crockett Keller. And Crockett Keller uh, sells guns, uh, and he also has a restaurant and will sell you food. Um, so it's called the Gatlin Gun Saloon. Uh, so you can uh, uh, go in, order your food, and browse the gun shop uh, while you're waiting on your order to be served. Oh, interesting. One last topic I want to touch on. I don't know if um, you're involved in this or not, but I understand that there's an effort underway to create a nested AVA, perhaps even called the Hickory Sands AVA um, within the Texas Hill Country Appalachian. Are you involved in that or do you have thoughts about that? Um, yes, the... Uh, Texas wine community, the growers and winery owners have met several times now. Um, and we, we have one person, Dan McLaughlin, who is working on the boundaries of the AVA, and it would be called the Hickory Sands AVA. Um, and he's, he's already found some wonderful maps to overlay soil type with uh, underground water. Um, so we can truly find an AVA that demonstrates the terroir um, of Mason County. Um, and then we've got another person who is writing the text of the application. Um, well, it's been harvest and 
heavy into winemaking right now. So uh, that does not take, uh, the AVA does not take precedent, but the application is coming along, which I'm happy about. Um, and the one, th- one other thing I'd like to mention about uh, Mason County wineries, most of the wineries on the square in Mason County are using only Mason County fruit. Sandstone Cellars uses Mason County fruit. Um, and Robert Parr uses Mason County fruit from his vineyard. Um, uh, Robert Clay uses Mason County fruit from their vineyard. Um, and uh, Peter's Prairie Winery uses Mason County fruit from their vineyard. And the other wineries have at least one wine that is using Mason County fruit. So if you want to truly taste uh, Mason County terroir, uh, you got to come to Mason County and uh, walk the wine trail because you'll be able to taste it for sure. You really get a sense of the place when when you're able to taste it so so directly. That's great. Yeah. Well, I love what you're doing there, and um, I think that it's a great new place that some people might not have discovered yet, but they definitely should. Look for it on your wine bottles. Look for it uh, in your travel planning. Yes. uh, There's going to be a group of us in San Antonio at the end of October um, at the Tasting Texas uh, Wine and Food event uh, put on by Culinaria. And this year, it's also being put on by the James Beard Foundation. Uh, So, Look for us there. Uh, you can go to culinariasa.org and find out more information about that. Thanks, Don. See you on the square. Listeners, make plans to attend the Fall Art and Wine Fest in Mason on Saturday, October 29th from 11 to 4. By the way, in the show notes, you'll find the episode of The Taste that Don mentioned and also that Tasting Texas Food and Wine Festival that's sponsored by Culinaria and the James Beard Foundation. There are plenty of lodging options in Fredericksburg, but no others offer personalized itinerary planning by yours truly. I'm still hoping that a podcast listener is going to book and take me up on my offer to help plan a trip to visit wineries. Cork and Cactus is a two-bedroom, one-bath place less than a mile from Main Street. The house is on a corner with ranch land on two sides, so you'll get daily visits from neighboring cows and deer. Fall is my favorite time to be in the hill country, so come enjoy Texas wine country and get away from it all. You can find Cork and Cactus on Airbnb or book at heavenlyhosts.com. I have a gold star to give today. Dallas writer Andrew Chalk reports that Yano Estacado Winery entered a 2018 Texas Syrah and a 2019 Texas Syrah La Violette into the Global Wine Masters, a unique wine competition that pits wines of the same variety from across the world. The wines are then judged blind by Masters of Wine and Master Sommeliers and other senior-level wine judges. Each of Yana's Syrahs won a silver medal in their category. After the competition, one judge on the panel even said that personally she awarded La Violetta a gold. She said, The wines show that y'all do belong on an international wine stage. And yes, she did say y'all. I got curious about this competition and poked around on the Global Wine Masters website. I happened to click on the Riesling competition and found that the Cherami Wine Riesling from 2019 was also awarded a silver medal 
in the competition last year. That's cool. The Global Masters says that by judging the wines without knowing where they're from, quote, preconceived notions of the importance of location are pushed aside, allowing wines from across the globe to be judged purely on style and price. Each tasting identifies the best examples of its grape variety from all around the world and from every price bracket, meaning a Bulgarian wine can be tasted alongside a Burgundian without prejudice or bias. So to prove this point, I looked to see where the other winners of the Riesling competitions originated. In addition to Cherami's Texas Riesling, other winners were from France, Canada, Chile, South Africa, Germany, Australia, and even Kazakhstan. So gold star to Jason Santani, winemaker at Yano, for winning silver for his two Syrahs, and a belated gold star to Cherami's Riesling, which I believe was made by Michael McClendon of Sage's Vintage. Get in touch. Please send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. You can even send me a voice memo. Just email it to texaswinepod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow my social media at texaswinepod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And then comment and share. That helps me find new listeners who are interested in Texas wine. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit TXWineLover.com to help you plan your next winery visit. I'll be back in two weeks with my favorite Chilean-turned-Texas winemaker, Sergio Quadra of Fall Creek Vineyards, who's celebrating his 10th harvest in Texas. Cheers, y'all.